The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of chapters 9 and 10. In the array of potential life paths that come before Martin, paths that range from idealism to materialism to patched-up hybrids of the two, few are as loud and as pure as that of Cliff Clausen. After his expulsion from Winnemac, Cliff became a car salesman, and now, with a good salary, growing commissions, and a face glowing with schemes for immediately acquiring large sums of money, he has all the car, the clothes, and the swagger of a good old boy. Cliff's confidence provokes Martin's self-doubt, making him conscious of his own lack of power and business skill. With Leora away, Martin is lonely and listless. Working 18 hours a day on new experiments, Gottlieb is jumpy and testy. So, when Martin absentmindedly makes a mistake, Gottlieb shrieks at him, Martin rages back, and Gottlieb fires him as lab assistant. As Martin storms out, we glimpse Gottlieb taking a step towards Martin's retreating back, but he lets him go. The next day, Dean Silva calls Martin to his office. He says that the faculty have been discussing Martin's inattentiveness, his drinking, his defense of the wayward cliff, and now his impertinence to the man who always took his part, Max Gottlieb. He says that unless Martin turns over a new leaf and apologizes to Gottlieb, he will be suspended, and if that doesn't help, expelled. Martin is defiant on all counts and waits for the words that would end his scientific life. But the dean, a rosy, pudgy, good little man, shows patience, gives him a suspension, and expresses hope that he will come to his senses. And just as Gottlieb took that step back, Martin's parting thought is that whatever Gottlieb has done, he still worships the man. Martin borrows some money from Cliff, and joins the cheerful pariahdom of shabby young men who prowl causelessly from state to state, from gang to gang, in the power of the wanderlust. After a time, a sense of direction begins to appear in his crazy drifting. He heads west to Leora. Rolling into the gusty vastnesses of snow, he feels free, like he did in his carefree days of wire-stringing in Montana. When he arrives at the station on the outskirts of Wheatsylvania, Leora is there waiting, lifting to him her two open hands, childish in red mittens. He says he has come to marry her, and she, unsurprisingly, agrees. As they approach the Tozer house, Leora's parents transform in Martin's mind from amusing figures in a story to oppressively real people, from whom he fears a storm of denunciation. He's brought into the house, feeling like a criminal taken for a guest, and he and Mrs. Tozer make anxiously polite conversation. When Mr. Tozer comes home, he too is creepily polite, as he endeavors to determine whether Martin drinks, how prosperous he is, and why on earth he has come all the way from the urbanites of Winnemac. Leora's brother Bert, who fancies himself a real man of affairs and a pillar of the Wheatsylvania community, is less delicate. He asks Martin bluntly why he is away from school this time of year, whether it is true that they are thinking of getting married, 
and how he intends to support a wife. This conference lasts till 9.30 at night, at which point Martin is ushered upstairs to bed and told that his tour of the town will begin at 10 a.m. But by that time the next morning, they are on the eastbound train to Leopolis, and by one, they are married. When they return home that night, the Tozer family is in an uproar of discussion about how and why this has happened and what is going to happen now, while Leora just watches them, her little head turning from one to another. To distract them from scandalous thoughts of pregnancy and extortion, Leora does something considered a sin more obscene. She pulls out a cigarette. Finally, it is decided that Martin will return to medical school while Leora stays with them, and he will return for her when he's able to earn some money. Thoughts of Gottlieb and research and the ideal of science are thus banished in favor of prudence. Martin returns to Winnemac to make his apology to Dean Silva and to ask if he can come back. Silva accepts him warmly back into the fold, perhaps more confident in his ambition to make Martin a great healer, now that Martin has the responsibility of supporting a wife. At his welcome, Martin becomes Silva's disciple, and the brilliant insanity of Max Gottlieb's genius vanished from his faith. In service to Leora and his new god, Dean Silva, Martin commits himself to learning with a fury. But he misses Leora too much, and he decides to save his money so he can go fetch her and bring her back to Zenith, and insists that her family support her while she studies stenography and he finishes medical school. The Tozer strike attitudes of defense, but seeing that Leora and Martin are prepared to throw everything away for each other, they give in. Martin and Leora rent a square room looking out over a stubbly wasteland, and coming into it the first time, they feel a weary pride of proprietorship, saying, Our first home. Hard at work on his studies, Martin still delights in the warm, half-conscious feeling of Leora's presence. Though he may have given up his Gottlieb worship, something of that spirit remains, and no one has better understood than Leora Martin's secret yearnings. Having buckled down to work, Martin begins to take pride in the admiration of his classmates, and especially of Angus Dewar. He and Leora labor painstakingly at their noble endeavors, and then, in their off time, eat hot dogs and speak in monosyllables. Amidst all the hectic activities of senior year, the most important question for the soon-to-be graduates becomes, what shall we do after we graduate? How long should we intern? Should we become general practitioners? Specialists? What specialty? Which are the best paid? Should we settle in the country or the city? Go west? Join the army? These are some of the sub-questions that comprise this overarching one. When Martin decides that he will pursue the dramatic and well-rewarded grandeur of surgery one day, and then the next day argues that surgery is all rot, Leora just offers amiable agreement. Ultimately, inspired by Dean Silva's speech about the physician as a servant to mankind, and given security by the Tozer's offer to help set him up in an office and buy his equipment, Martin decides that after his internship, he will settle in Wheatsylvania. 
and he and Leora do their best to work themselves into enthusiasm about the decision. The second of my posts was called Love in the Open Hand. I just finished delivering a lecture called Falling in Love with Poetry, and in it I discussed a sonnet by Edna St. Vincent Millay that reminds me very much of Leora. In fact, a member of our group who attended the lecture noticed and commented to me privately on the very same thing. In this poem, Malay is describing an expression of love that is not coy, reserved, or self-conscious. It is not dressed up and dampened by formality or tradition. No obstacles or trials stand in its way. It is a love blithely and vulnerably uninhibited childlike in its pure, unself-conscious joy. Here's the poem. Not in a silver casket cool with pearls, or rich with red corundum, or with blue, locked, and the key withheld, as other girls have given their loves, I give my love to you. Not in a lover's knot, not in a ring worked in such fashion, and the legend plain, Semper Fidelis, where a secret spring kennels a drop of mischief for the brain. Love in the open hand, no thing but that. Ungemmed, unhidden, wishing not to hurt. As one should bring you cowslips in a hat swung from the hand, or apples in her skirt. I bring you, calling out as children do. Look what I have, and these are all for you. Leora certainly does not keep her love locked and the key withheld. Her love is simply joyfully uninhibited. Love in the open hand, no thing but that. I thought of this poem especially in chapter 9, when Martin, after months of neglecting Leora, pulls up to the train station in Wheatsylvania to find her waiting. Quote, she lifted to him her two open hands, childish in red mittens. He ran down, he dropped his awkward bag on the platform, and, unaware of the gaping furry farmers, they were lost in a kiss. Unquote. The last of my posts was called Sinclair Lewis, the Poet. Reading Aerosmith made me wonder, has Sinclair Lewis written poetry? From my research, I gather that he hasn't, which surprises me, because I think he writes like a poet. Poetry uses all the resources of language—literal meaning, connotation, sound, etc.—to convey an idea, and Sinclair Lewis often employs all those varied resources. His style is not one of the usual directness of prose. Now this has to be true of all great writers in some sense. To convey an idea powerfully, efficiently, and evocatively, you have to use all the tools of language available to you. But I've noticed throughout this novel that Sinclair Lewis uses words in unexpected and uniquely effective ways, that his descriptions make things sensorially real, and that he even sometimes makes up words when he needs them. Perhaps he sometimes too goes overboard naturalistically describing something to death as an end in itself. But most of the time, I delight in the palpability of his descriptions. 
Here are a few examples that caught my attention from these chapters. I'd love to hear some of yours. In introducing the new Cliff, quote, he slowly made out that the driver, a young man in coffee-colored loose motor coat and hectic checked cap and intense neckwear, was Cliff Clawson, and that Cliff was beckoning, unquote. A cap as hectic and neckwear as intense. I'm loath to suggest exactly what Lewis is accomplishing with these unexpected adjectives, but I think it's something like this. The busy pattern and loud colors of Cliff's accessories prime us for the busy loudness that is Cliff himself. Everything about him, from the approach of his startling roadster, to the bluster of his manner, to the pattern on his clothes, goes together into one integrated picture of unrestrained boisterousness. Or, there's this description of Cliff at work. Quote, In Zenith, he left his bag at the interurban trolley station and sought Cliff, whom he found practicing eloquence over a beautiful pearl-gray motor hearse, in which a beer-fed undertaker was jovially interested. Unquote. Now, a hearse and its suggestion of death is a serious matter. But with the exception of certain reverential figures like Gottlieb, the cynical Sinclair Lewis sees superficiality and unseriousness everywhere. What better way to capture that here than with a reference to practiced eloquence and a beer-fed undertaker? Not just beer-drinking, but beer-fed, as if beer is all this sort of a man needs to sustain him. Or there's this account of Martin's efforts at frugalness. Quote, he had lived, very badly, on grease-swimming stews and soda-reeking bread, by what he earned along the way. Unquote. Now, I've recently been obsessed with the Great British Baking Show, and I know that good bread is not supposed to smell or taste of its rising agents. Martin's soda-reeking bread and his grease-swimming stews suggest a lack of culinary quality. One of my favorites is perhaps the hardest to explain. Quote, Her parents, formerly amusing figures in a story, became oppressively real inside of the wide, brown, porchy house. Unquote. A porchy house. What on earth does that mean? Well, it means in part that it has a big porch, which has a connotation of a rural family home. But I think it also emphasizes Martin's fears and irritability upon approaching it. It's a big old porchy house. I don't know. I may have gotten my accounts of some of these wrong. But my point is, I love Lewis's inventiveness with language and the way his descriptions bring me fully into his world.